0: This morning is the relationship between Jesus and those in authority. First, as we saw, he is brought before the Jewish authorities, uh, the high Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, and then on Good Friday, before the Roman authorities and uh, Pontius Pilate. How does Jesus relate to those in authority? What is his attitude? What is his posture toward those around him? Uh, This question and our Lord's posture is important because it would begin to give shape to all the rest of the New Testament. It would begin to give shape to the early church and how the early church understood its relationship as the church of Christ to those in authority, whether that authority is the civil magistrate or one's employer or one's parents. And it's not only an important question, it's a relevant question on this very day as thousands if not millions of believers are in the the aftermath or mix of a presidential election. It's an an appropriate time to be instructed and reminded of the kind of posture believers are to have as we live out our Christian faith and our Christian lives in this world that God has ordered and ordained and in which we find ourselves As his children. I want us to consider that question of the church's relationship, the believers' relationship to those in authority through the eyes or the lens of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. But it's not unrelated to Matthew 26 and 27, the trial of our Lord. If you remember back in chapter 26, uh, while Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the chief priests came to arrest. Our Lord. And they came, and as they set their hands upon him, what did Peter do? Peter responded by drawing his own sword, we read, and cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant. Peter, in that instance, responds to unjust rule, an unwarranted arrest, as our Lord is innocent without sin guiltless, he responds with the sword. And what did our Lord respond to Peter? Put your sword back, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So now we turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Years later, as Peter is penning these words, and we see how radically different Peter's posture is toward those in authority, even toward unjust Rule, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Listen now to God's word. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are strained like sheep, but... You've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As Peter instructs these believers about their their posture and relationship to those in authority, he makes very clear the path that believers are to walk and to take. He says there in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps." When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the Lord. Christ not only subjected himself to earthly authorities, but when he suffered at the hands of ungodly and unjust rule, he didn't revile. He didn't threaten in return. He willingly suffered. Those are the steps Peter's drawing our attention to. Enduring... Suffering, even in the midst of unjust, injustice. Notice here in this context that Peter's words about following in the steps of our Lord Jesus come in the context of subjection to authorities. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters. If you looked at the first verse of chapter 3, it's marriage. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then verse 13 of chapter 2, be subject once again for the Lord's sake to every human institution, the emperor and governors. These are hard words. I've never seen these words. I don't think I'll ever see these words in a greeting Hallmark kind of card. These are hard words. They don't come naturally to us. Man's natural disposition as sinful creatures is towards self-autonomy not submission, not subjection to authority, whether that's the authority of God, the authority of the state, or the authority of one's parents. Being subject to others, it's not only in opposition to one's natural inclination, but it also is influenced by the culture in which a person might be living. We're all familiar with, of course, the American flag, the stars and stripes. For many people, that flag represents freedom Liberty and Independence Opportunity it was adopted in the 1770s but prior to that in the colonial period were other flags some of which have endured and are flown still today one of them in particular is called the Gadston flag designed by the general of the Continental Army one of the generals Christopher Gadston if you've seen the flag you know that the background is all yellow And in the middle of the flag is a timber rattlesnake all coiled up with an open mouth ready to strike. Now, if that message is not clear enough, there's words added at the bottom. Don't tread on me. It's a warm warm kind of message. right? It's a welcoming kind of message. Uh, There's a a spirit of independence, a spirit of self-autonomy, not only within the human heart, but within cultures, and nations. In light of that, how then do we understand and apply Peter's words? Be subject, repeatedly here. Be subject. John Calvin points out the additional challenge that the hearers to whom Peter is writing faced, as he says, since all of the magistrates were enemies of Christ. They abused their authority. They showed no sign of godliness, being subject is hard enough, but being subject when the authority is unjust and wicked is all the more difficult. And the first thing I would draw our attention to that we ought to take from Peter's words is what it is that Peter roots the believer's effectiveness and strength in as Christians. Where does our effectiveness and strength come from? For Peter, it's not who is ruling. As king or civil magistrate or what authority structure or what authority rules over me. But who I am and who we are in Jesus Christ. Strength and effectiveness and fruit bearing as the church of Christ is not rooted in who is in authority over us. Or what that authority looks like. But in our identity in the Lord Jesus The more well-known words in 1 Peter 2 come right before the text that I have read. Look at verse 9. This is where Peter says, But you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he goes on and says, You're sojourners and you are exiles. And that's how he begins the letter to the exiles dispersed through Cappadocia, Pontus, Glacia, other areas. This is very strong identity language that Peter's using. This is who you are. You are God's possession. You are God's people. You might remember uh, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not that you might be, or if you obtain a certain status, you could be. He declares it. This is who you are. Very strong identity language. But it's also citizenship kind of language. A chosen race. A holy nation. And so I would suggest that Christians are people who are holding a kind of dual citizenship as we live our lives in the years that God gives us on this earth. We have an, a national or earthly citizenship, but we also have a heavenly citizenship. Citizens on earth, perhaps of the U.S. or Canada or England or Mexico, wherever it might be for believers. But then we are heavenly citizens. As Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. This makes the Christian a little bit Different, I might say, a little bit odd. We've got a dual citizenship. You've got you—you're you, a citizen of heaven. Yes, I belong to a heavenly citizen, a heavenly kingdom. While I'm living here on earth, I was reminded this past week from one of our elders of the words of Flannery O'Connor: "You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd." Thank you, John. This is part of the reason why Peter addresses them in verse 11. As sojourners and exiles. Those words describe a person who comes alongside the native citizen as a foreigner. It's got similar meaning to Jesus' words about the Holy Spirit in his farewell discourse. I will not leave you alone in John 14. I will send you a comforter The paraclete, one who comes alongside and even dwells within us. We are exiles and sojourners. We are dispersed throughout many, many nations, and we come alongside and we bear light, bear witness of of the light of Jesus Christ. So we're dispersed, a kind of foreigner. And I would encourage us to be thinking about holding tightly onto our heavenly citizenship and our heavenly identity and loosely onto our earthly citizenship. The more one holds tighter and tighter onto our earthly citizenship, the more worry, anxiety, fear surfaces in the heart. Now, one might be led by reading Peter's words to conclude that since we're a chosen race, we're set apart, we're a holy nation... That we are, as Calvin says, free to lay hold of what is for our own advantage. That we are free to live for ourselves. Calvin says we might think that. We're heavenly citizens. God's called me and set us apart. We're a different people. We should live to what advantages advantages us. But strikingly, Peter says the opposite. Verse 13. You've been set apart. You're a chosen race. Be subject. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors. Even more than that, in verse 17, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Is that something that we really do? We honor those in authority over us? Honor the emperor. In Peter's day, that would have meant someone like the figure of the Roman emperor Nero, a staunch enemy of Christ, someone who went to great lengths to put to death believers. Unlike our own nation and day, Peter and the early church lived under the exclusive rule of pagan governance, with little liberty to express Christian faith, or virtue, or witness without consequence. And yet, even with that, the pervasive posture and message throughout Scripture is one of honor and submission. Which meant, for example, Paul in Romans 13, verse 6, saying, because of the civil authority, you pay your taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Or Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, which we heard mentioned during the corporate prayer, I urge you that prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all peoples, kings and those in high authority. This pleases God, Paul says to Timothy, who desires all kinds of people to come to a knowledge of the truth. The apostles' focus and what animated, gave life to their hearts, was much more about the kind of witness they would bear in the culture that God had placed them than who it was in office. That's what, that's what gave them life. That's what was their primary focus. And it's a remarkable thing that the early church in the first century flourished as it did, given the lengthy and severe episodes of persecution at the hands of the authorities and pagan rulers. Yet Peter provides the New Testament posture we're to have. Be subject. One New Testament dictionary said that means a voluntary attitude of cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. Being subject in submission can be weighty, can feel indeed burdensome. This is also the New Testament exhortation of Christians toward one another. were to be subject one to another. Um, children toward parents. Servants toward masters. Citizens toward the civil magistrate. Same language. Why this posture? Why should believers take this kind of attitude? Well, Peter tells us the reason in verse 13 and 15. He says... In 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. And then in verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Peter's not suggesting that Christians should be mere passive, should roll over, should be unconcerned about the authorities or unjust rule. Not at all. He says to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Who are these foolish people that Peter is addressing, speaking about? They are those who are ignorant of the truth and of Christian virtue. It's those who have been opposing the Christian church, the things of God, and they're doing so not because they lack information, but because they have what we might call a culpable ignorance. They're willfully disobedient to the truth. They're pressing and running down the church. They're willfully rejecting the truth revealed in the apostles' teaching. This kind of culpable ignorance is as present today as it was in Peter's day. So the question is, what do you do with such people? Well, Peter's answer is quite graphic. He says we should muzzle them. That's the word he uses in verse 15 for silence. Silence them. It's the word referred to, uh, a muzzle that is put on an ox, some kind of animal, to keep them from biting or opening their mouth. And here, as we live in our own day, in our own culture, various conversations, particularly during emotional times that can rise during elections, various societal tensions. Uh, Some of us might be inclined to take some kind of a muzzle and silence somebody. We've perhaps been tempted to that kind of thinking. Well, that's the picture Peter gives, but that's not the actual process. Silencing happens, he says, in three words, by doing Good. Now, Peter's making a very powerful point. Uh, Richard Linsky puts it this way. Peter does not say, submit, because your submission is God's will. Well, it is God's will. But we're not called to submit for the sake of submission. Rather, Linsky says, Peter appeals to a gospel motive. That's what he's after. God's will, in verse 15, is that as we submit ourselves, even to those who are ungodly, by doing good, we silence the ignorance of foolish people. It seems to me that subjection and submission puts us in the kind of relationship with those around us to enable us to effectively bear witness which ought to be the Christian's aim. You look back at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount. Bearing witness through good deeds, leads to the saving of souls. Now, we should recognize what Peter is not saying in these verses. I'll mention two things. One, Peter is not suggesting that we not engage authorities, that we not engage the civil magistrate or king, that we not seek to persuade them, or that we not seek to use the liberties that God has given in the nation and within the laws of which surround us to advance righteousness and justice and truth. And two, when Peter says be subject, he's not suggesting we do so at all costs or without condition. What would the condition be in which we would not subject ourselves or submit to the governor or the king? The civil magistrate. Well, one main scriptural principle would be that if any authority forbids me to do what God commands or commands me to do what God forbids, I must obey my my, my greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ. If God commands me, if, if the state commands me to do something God forbids or forbids me to do something God commands, we must serve, we must obey the Lord our God. If ministers were forbidden to preach and teach that marriage is exclusively a relationship between one man and one woman, then they must count the cost. If churches were forbidden to evangelize in society because it was considered a kind of hate speech or discrimination, churches must count the cost. Peter himself is an example for us in Acts chapter 4 When he and John were confronted by the authorities, they were charged to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Christ. And what did they say? They said in response, "...whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard." Might that be an attitude we have about the importance of bearing witness, speaking forth the name of our Lord Jesus... They resisted the charge in order to be obedient to the Lord. Nevertheless, the overwhelming posture represented in 1 Peter 2 and throughout the Scriptures is that of subjection to those in authority. I think their calling here in 1 Peter, our calling, is very similar to those in exile in Jeremiah's day. Uh, Just this last week in my own devotional readings, I came across and Read through Jeremiah chapter 29. Here's what the Lord said to those believers who had been exiled by the Babylonians, their city besieged, living as exiles in a foreign land. Thus says the Lord to all the exiles in Babylon. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may multiply But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. Brothers and sisters, not only are we exiles in the nation in which we live, but the nation in which we live is the Babylon. It is the Babylon to which God has called us wherever Christians find themselves. Exile seems hard. It seems like very hard, rocky ground. How will the truth, how will justice, how will righteousness uh, prevail? How will the church flourish? I remember my first year in pastoral ministry, and the stated clerk of our presbytery asked me, uh, how, how is ministry going? And I remember responding, well, the ground seems kind of hard or rocky. I wish it were a little more fertile. He said, it's always fertile. It's always fertile. And I think there's a lot of truth there. Wherever God places you and I, wherever he places his people, that is the ground to which he has called us. And that's the greatest calling of all. To be called by Almighty God to bear witness to the one true eternal king. That's the highest calling, to reflect the cross of Jesus Christ in our own lives. And that's where Peter goes. In verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The cross not only becomes the means by which God accomplishes our redemption, it becomes the paradigm, the very pattern for which we live our lives, dying to our own sin and even subjecting ourselves and enduring suffering, even unjustly. I would leave you with two things. First, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you when that happens. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. We don't seek for suffering or for persecution. But when it comes, it is an avenue of blessing for the people of God because he is distinguishing us. He's setting us apart as the true people of God, sanctifying his people, citizens of our eternal heavenly kingdom. And lastly, while we subject ourselves to others, we do so knowing that All authorities are subject to him. In fact, that's what Peter says at the end of the next chapter in 1 Peter 3. He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What kingdom and what king has a grip on our heart this day? Who's gripping us? Who are we serving first? Might it be the Lord Jesus Christ, a much more glorious, everlasting kingdom in which we invest our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for the blessed calling that you have placed upon us to be, indeed, even sojourners and exiles. We pray, O Lord, that you would grant us wisdom as we continue as your people in what feels like uh, times of, of turmoil, difficulty, darkness, yet you have set us apart uh, to serve the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would do that work in us by your grace, uh, causing us to be faithful. We pray that you would uh, dispel anxiety or fear or doubt, uh, knowing, Lord, that the future of your kingdom of which we have uh, been adopted into has a bright future uh, that we might be filled with great hope. Uh, And Lord, that we would take to heart the wonderful calling of bearing witness of who you are. Lord, we pray that you would root us deeply in uh, your word and and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, For this we pray uh, with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.